Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. So we felt pretty guilty on Tuesday after we released our first show. We called it the Heartbreak Special, which in mm. retrospect might have put a few people off if they're looking for a pick-me-up after one of the worst losses in Irish sporting history. Well, yeah, but I mean, we did put on the warning sign there. So, I mean, we, as, as you're about to tell us, there were a lot of emails, a lot of tweets. Well, particularly it seems a commentary montage that we put together mm. unintentionally broke quite a few extra hearts, particularly on the Lewis in Dublin. Yeah, every uh, second tweet was about the Lewis. Harry Coonhan tweeted, shedding some tears in the Lewis, listening to second captain, still hurts. Kigo, second captains, why are you trying to make me cry in the Lewis with the commentary and sad music? I'm not ready for this yet. And Mandy Jan- Johnson was more aggressive. She said, what's wrong with you people? I listened thinking it might help, but it's just got worse. I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure where she was, was going. Extremely aggressive, but yeah, I mean, we, we I, I thought we, we did okay. We did an okay job flagging the fact that it would be heartbreaking, and you know, it, it's, it's going to be cathartic, but there's going to be some pain there. Well, I'm sorry if we upset you. I also think it's kind of sad that those two lads on the loose didn't find each other. Yeah, that would have been. They nice. They could have comforted each other. It would have been great. Just a single tear rolling down both of their cheeks, holding each other. Hold yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to be alone for this Lewis uh, journey. It's Mark Horgan in for Owen today, and this show will be very, very different because not only do we have P. Bezo and U.S. Murph, mm-hmm. who's he's always downbeat, you know, of course, always in bad form. One of the most the grumpiest people I've ever spoken to, that's for sure. But after one of the funniest injury sequences ever in Irish sport, we'll be joined in studio by a GA icon. Shane Kern with the kick out. The forty-two-year-old goalkeeper. Turn it out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He fought it. He's 50 yards out from goal. What a game for us coming. All the mother niggas lame and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time I've seen your tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 the last one. Bam. What a game for us coming. Leave a pretty girl sad reputation. Start a fight club, Brad reputation. I asked the question. Does anybody deserve to lose at the Lara Club final? Give me a tech 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 if you know the answer. It'll be heartbreak on either side. Imagine being eight up. Imagine coming eight down. Bitch. I know you're tired. 
Shane Curran has been lifted by an umpire. <laughs> Sub goalie. Two castle firemen. And a British man. I can't see Curran continuing. It could be his last race out of goals. Yes, the Kanye West Bound to Roscommon remix there that uh, the that world's been brilliant. crying out for. That is extremely, uh, extremely funny. Murph, to cheer everyone up on Tuesday, we posted a video of this. Yep. Shane Curran's perhaps final race out of goal as Willie Hegarty of Shannonside FM called it. I know, I tell know. Every, tell everyone what happened. So it's uh, into extra time. Uh, the teams are level. Shane Curran uh, gets the ball about 14 yards out. Well, actually, inside his own small parallelogram, in fact, Ken, <laughs> I would have said. And um, the... The, the pitch kind of opens like the parts like the Red Sea mm. and Shane Kerr never a man to turn down an opportunity to sally upfield surges forth surges forth past the 21 yard line up past the 45 yard line and then it appears as if he has been shot <laughs> by some kind of phantom sniper in Dr. Hyde Park goes down clutching his calf in extraordinary amounts of pain but the he's ball's like, gone loose yeah he's like 55 yards from goal so he has to try and make his way back to, to his goal mouth uh, he does so under extreme duress <laughs> physical uh, duress uh, like a, a beached whale sort of flopping his way uh, mm. up the pitch back so, to the goal mouth so he, he gets back to his goal mouth uh, and you know, the relative safety of the goal mouth but the pain has only just begun by the looks of the video from what we can see uh, because he manages to stay upright until for a, one passage of play, two passages of play, then Castlebar kick a point. At which stage the pain becomes too much, <laughs> and he lies down on the ground, writhing in paroxysms of pain, yeah. uh, until he's thrown, car- <laughs> basically thrown like a bag of coal, like a bag of coal. Yes, exactly. Grabbed by an umpire, a Castlebar Mitchell's player, and two of his teammates, and thrown in some sort of bloodied, painful heap about two yards behind the the end line. Just left off the off the pitch, like out of the way. Yeah, thrown. And then the game goes on. I mean, it was pretty heartless it was stuff. Cold. Um, but we'll get the full story from the man himself in you due looking course. Looking forward to seeing your old buddy Ken. Ken and Shane Kern are always very close uh, ar- yeah. around the TV show, aren't they? Yeah, well, they were. Because really we, um, you know, spend a lot of time together at the Emirates Stadium. You know, he yeah. goes, He went there a lot. I went there for professional reasons. He went there for. Uh, the love of the reasons, game. reasons of passion. Well, he loves his gooners, <laughs> as he will no doubt tell us later on. Yeah, the star second captain's live on RT will be joining us a little later. But after we concocted the initial flawless plans for hosting the Rugby World Cup in Ireland, that, that's what happened, wasn't it? That's it, yeah. SCRWC 2023. Slight name change, but you've got it pretty much right. In recent weeks, the debate is really gathering momentum on whether or not we can host a major sporting event on this island. Well, if we can somehow gather up $50 billion, Ken, it won't be a problem because the next major sporting event is the Winter Olympics in Sochi in Russia. And that's how much they're spending. Yeah, um, it seems like. Uh, look, I mean, this is not a this is not necessarily a connected issue. But I was reading a really interesting article the other day uh, about the uh, what they call the honored society. If you call it the mafia or the Cosa Nostra or any of these other sort of names that people are familiar with, you're immediately showing yourself to be a continentale. Uh, which is what Sicilians call somebody from mainland Italy, mm. uh, people who don't really understand Sicily. Uh, and this article was about how, isn't it funny the way these kind of top bosses who they arrested always seem to be some guy out in, in a farmhouse somewhere who can barely read? Um, uh, I always found that funny growing up in Sicily because I knew that you know the local doctor, the local lawyer, the local notary were all members of the Honor Society. And it always struck me as strange that their boss would be that illiterate guy out in a farmhouse. Uh, I'm not quite sure. They had a statistic in it about how uh, the Honoured Society had skinned 9 billion euros off the Sicilian healthcare system in one year, 2012, which is getting on for three quarters of the entire budget of the HSE, for instance. 
Uh, and the point was that was, whereas the Honor Society used to make all its money from, you know, essentially going into the local businesses and threatening to beat up the people there unless they got money every month, you know. Yeah. Now they don't really tend to have to do that anymore. A much better way to make money is when the government is spending a whole lot of money on something and you can kind of get in there. Uh, anyway, um, we are talking about this Sochi Olympics and apparently they've spent $50 billion on this uh, Winter Olympics. About $30 billion of those dollars seem to, uh, well, no one's quite sure where they've gone. Just to put this into context, the London Olympics cost $13 billion. This Winter Olympics is more than all previous Winter Olympics put together. Mm. Which is pretty spectacular. Yeah, it is. And it's six times over budget at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And six times. Yeah, I mean, you know, these budgets, I don't know, you know, how they come to the original bu- budgets because there's never been a budget underspend in any sporting event ever. But to go six times over it really would well, suggest. I mean, the budget for the Winter Olympics is, is you know, what, four times. Well, getting over four times Ireland's entire annual health budget. Yeah, it, well, it might have cost for them. For a, a two week sporting event. Yeah, it might have cost them a little less if they had decided to have it in a place where there's, you know, some infrastructure or some snow. Some snow or some sort of wintry conditions. Yeah, there are no shortage of places with snow in Russia. But, I mean, this place is is like the Russian Côte d'Azur. You know, it's the Mm. equivalent of the south of France in in Russia. It's the closest in Russia you get to south of France. So that's where they've decided to have the Winter Olympics. Well, the Winter Olympics is going to start in February and Andrew Roth of the New York Times is in Moscow and he joins us now. Andrew, could you describe what type of place Sochi is, first of all, and why it appeals to Putin and the IOC so much? Because it seems using any sort of basic logic, this isn't the place you'd want to pick for a Winter Olympics. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of, uh, in terms of Russia, I mean, Sochi is one of the few places, perhaps the only place I can imagine where you could have, you know, they already had some sort of a sort of small infrastructure for, for mountain sports. Um, originally, it's a, a sort of sleepy uh, resort town from the Sochi, from the Soviet period. Uh, the games actually aren't being held in uh, Sochi itself, where there are a lot of uh, let's say uh, sanatoriums, these kinds of uh, places that were quite popular during the Sochi, during the Soviet period. Uh, right now, Sochi is the the Sochi Olympics being held in Adler are divided into two parts. There's the coastal cluster. Uh, I was there in the recent weeks. It's about 17 degrees centigrade mm. down by the water right now, uh, and that's where you'll be seeing some of the uh, ice skating, uh, ice skating or hockey, basically large arena sports like that. And then uh, there's a mountain cluster, which is going to be held up uh, near a small town called Krasnaya Polyana. It's about an hour train uh, or an hour and a half drive from, uh, from Adler. And uh, that's where the mountains are located. And you'll be seeing things like uh, mountain sports, downhill skiing, uh, ski jump, things along those lines. Uh, in terms of what this town was before, I mean, it was sort of very sleepy kind of more or less quiet town, uh, quiet resort town that uh, I wouldn't say was on the upswing, but uh, the construction has really changed the place a lot. And it's a town that's close to Putin as well. It's, it's kind of very much his personal project. It's a place that he, he would, used to holiday in or continues to holiday in. Yeah, um, I mean, there are rumours and uh, we hear things when we went down that, you know, he, he still comes down sometimes and uh, there is some sort of uh, a residence there where he would take some time to vacation as well. Uh, you know, one thing that Putin has uh, pushed before are sort of mountain sports. Putin in general is a big supporter of sports, uh, as you know. But, uh, you know, sort of getting Russians to ski and not just to ski uh, in Europe, but to ski in Russia, too, would also be a sort of big plus for Putin as well. 
even with the climate being subtropical and there probably being no snow, uh, which issues seem problematic enough, um, apparently a lot of the construction that's taken place as well is in particularly marshy land. This presumes on Adler. What sort of problems is this causing? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, in terms of what I've seen at the Olympic Park, it's, it's a you know, very expensive project and the area that was formerly a marsh uh, has been you know, completely sort of paved over. Uh, one of the biggest costs of these games has been, you know, not just the actual sports arenas, but the infrastructure projects, the roads, uh, you know, gas, electricity, sort of recreating an entire town to be able to handle this kind of influx of people uh, and to have a sort of a world-class Olympic Games that's so important for, uh, for Putin to have, as we've seen. Uh, there have been a lot of different complaints down there, especially during the, the building process. One thing is that there are a lot of migrant laborers, uh, you know, supposedly somewhere around 100,000, although I haven't seen that number confirmed anywhere. These are estimates. Uh, you know, a lot of people coming into the area from uh, either Central Asia, from across Russia, uh, and also from uh, the North Caucasus as well, sort of migrant laborers. And the other question is about the, the environmental impact, too. Uh, how do you sort of dig up all of that land and, and do everything to make these projects? And there have been uh, some reports about, you know, illegal dumping or sort of uh, Sochi violating this sort of promise to uh, to have an ecologically friendly uh, construction process because this is really an enormous project to build. I can't understand, Andrew, how, how um, they would have violated any environmental regulations given the giant budget that they have. I mean, it's apparently $51 billion with opposition figures now claiming that about $30 billion of it doesn't seem to have been accounted for. Well, I mean, there's a lot of questions behind uh, exactly what's going on with the money in, in terms of building the Olympic Games right now. A lot of it, most of it, is supplied by the government, and we can see that the costs are sort of going up at that time. Uh, and the other question is about the private investors, uh, mostly sort of oligarchs or large government companies, national champions, that have uh, also signed on to help build these Olympics. Uh, in terms of exactly how much money is accounted for or not accounted for, um, you know, the, 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 the estimates, and then they really are that estimates, are just based on, on what we've seen in previous games. Uh, how much should certain objects, uh, excuse me, how much should certain buildings cost, uh, you know, compared to how much did the ice skating rink cost in, in 2010 in Vancouver, for instance, uh, or the question of uh, what should the cost, of, you know, what should the, the excess uh, in terms of the original quoted cost, how much should that be? Uh, you know, it's been 200% in past cases. Here it appears that the budget has skyrocketed far more, right? Uh, from an original estimate, I think, of $12 billion somewhere in, 2000, in 2007, 2008, and uh, up to where we are at the $51 billion amount right now. Um, you can say that, I mean, you have to understand that building these Olympics is a, is a far larger project than we've seen in the past. So you can imagine why it would be more expensive. But um, there are questions and there have been, you know, various reports that uh, based mostly on analysis and not on actual, uh, let's, say, let's say, an investigation that shows, you know, perfectly that money has been stolen here and here and here. Um, but there's a sense that money is disappearing uh, in this project as well. I'm sure that you've heard about several uh, managers uh, who've also been, you know, accused of... Uh, accused of embezzling funds during the building of certain projects up there. And uh, two of them, uh, one, in fact, uh, Bill Olive, it's his last name, who was working for Krasnaya Polyana, uh, receiving money from a national bank. He, he fled the country uh, around the time that uh, he was sort of accused of, uh, of embezzling funds from the project. Yeah. It seems, Andrew, that you wouldn't even really have to embezzle funds. It's such a kind of feeding frenzy that... Um it's it's almost kind of anything goes environment. I mean, for instance, one report that we 
so claims that there's a an 18 mile stretch of road there, which cost eight and a half billion dollars to build. I mean, I wondered if you were. I don't know if you have any experience in road building, but if <laughs> if you were challenged to if you were challenged to spend nearly nine billion dollars on the construction of an 18 mile stretch of road, I mean, how would you go about that? Well, you know, uh, there there were a lot of uh, jokes made about, especially this this road, essentially, because the question was, if you had paved this road not with, let's say, concrete, but you paved it with Louis Vuitton bags or with solid gold, you might come out with a, a cost that's less expensive than eight billion dollars. Um, you know, from my experience, of course, not having too much uh, too much experience in road building, we can only sort of look at it from the sense of of common sense. You know, is this sort of uh, price that a road from from uh, one area of the of the Sochi Olympics to another should cost. Um, I mean, clearly it's a lot of money, and uh, I think uh, as the games come closer and we have exact you know cost figures for what everything is is at right now, it's quite clear that uh, certain players have have you know it's been very profitable for certain players, especially those who are building that road. Uh, others are, are complaining about the fact that they're having to invest so much money in this, and they're trying to, to restructure debt, uh, basically to say that th- this is a, a money-losing project and that they, uh, they more or less uh, want the government to invest even more in what they're doing right now. Andrew, what's uh, the media's role in all of this? Are, they f- are you free to report on exactly what you want over there? You know, uh, going down there is quite interesting. Um, there's a lot of security, and it's a very highly secured area right now. Uh, essentially, to get into any of the Olympic areas, they have you know sort of guided tours. Occasionally, you can go in and, and meet with specific people uh, who are working there. But uh, more or less, just you know, somebody can't just go down there basically and walk into the Olympic Village, walk into the Olympic area. Um, so I think that there there are two real roles. One is to look at sort of the price and the the expenses that are being paid into these these Sochi Olympics and uh, to just either use sort of expert analysis, common sense, to see if $51 billion is really the amount that this should cost, to sort of assess the situation on the ground, see how the preparations are going, and then use the other information to come to an informed conclusion. The other question is just about uh, what does this mean for, uh, you know, the sort of social issues that surround such a large building project like this, the questions of migrant workers, the questions of environmental concerns, uh, even just the questions of uh, what's the future for, you know, what was originally a sort of sleepy resort town or, you know, a place that wasn't so popular for skiing. Uh, well, what it will look like in the future? Is this a viable project in general? Well, it's not, it's, I mean, however much money they've spent in the Winter Olympics, it's, it's not the biggest sporting event that's coming up in Russia over the next few years. I mean, they've also got the World Cup, which maybe in terms of construction, uh, okay, there's, it's, it's, a, it's wider in scope, but maybe there's not as much involved at each particular site. Do you expect to see the World Cup, or is the World Cup already turning into uh, this kind of bonanza for the construction industry that we can see from the budget for this Winter Olympics? I really think it will be. Um, you know why? Is, uh, the issue is that in Sochi, it's not just the building of sporting arenas, uh, you know, building basically a place to, to actually hold the games. It's infrastructure projects that are really costing a lot of money down there as well. And um, with, I think the, the World Cup is supposed to be held in 11 cities. Uh, yes, 11 cities. And I mean, that, that means creating ways to get to those 11 cities. That means having the hotel infrastructure in cities that haven't had a World Cup or a world-class sporting event before. So it's not just about the actual, uh, what's going to go into building the arenas, but the things that come along with that. I think we're going to see a very high budget for, for the World Cup games, although we'll have to see as, as time goes on. I can tell you in Moscow already, they've, they've already closed one of the main, uh, an 80,000-seat stadium 
to begin preparations for those games. I mean, that's four and a half years away. So you can see that, uh, I mean, the preparations are going to be enormous uh, for the games as they come up. And I think once we get past the Winter Olympics, which is what everybody's focusing on right now, uh, there are other sort of uh, events going to be between that and the World Cup, but there's going to be a lot of focus on the World Cup and on uh, how Russia will build up for that. And Andrew, insofar as it's possible to gauge, what do you think um, the Russians themselves make of this? I mean, I ask because if you compare, for instance, to the situation in Brazil, Brazil hosting the World Cup next year and hosts the Confederations Cup in, in this summer, and there was these huge protests around uh, the tournament. Uh, and essentially the point of the protesters was, why are we spending all this money on uh, these tournaments when it's, all, it's, it's essentially just this uh, kind of... Uh, you know, a, a corporate uh, leisure trip for, you know, FIFA people and, you know, ways for the construction industry to make money. And we've got real social problems in this country that aren't being addressed and this is a waste. Is there anything like that sort of attitude in Russia where, if anything, the waste seems to be even uh, greater? You know, uh, in terms of protests, I mean, we haven't seen anything, you know, large like that where the Olympics have become a flashpoint for uh for, for protests against the government. I think that uh, many Russians are, are consigned to the, the sort of the Winter Olympics being here. I think uh, you know, many Russians are quite patriotic in the sense that uh, they're very happy to have the world, the, the, excuse me, the Winter Olympics here in the country. Uh, you know, for, for the majority of other people who are spread out across the country, I mean, they don't see the sort of stage or the scale of the building going on in Sochi. So it, for them, it's not sort of an irritant in their daily lives. In terms of the money, I mean, there, there's a sort of fatalistic sense here to a certain degree that money is, is stolen in, in a variety of ways, in so many ways, that um, it, it hasn't raised sort of the enormous kind of protest that, that you would mention in, in Brazil, for instance. Uh, there are also strong uh, activists and other people who, who have pointed out that, you know, there are many more ways and better ways to spend this money that we're seeing right now. But from what I've seen, at least being down there, and uh, being here in Moscow as well, it hasn't, it hasn't transformed into, like, let's say, a large social movement with the Winter Olympics as a flashpoint. Andrew, is it possible for something like this to uh, break into a large social movement, though? And we've seen all the elements of censorship um, in Russia over the last while, particularly to do with the Olympics and to do with sport. Uh, we talk about uh, Putin uh, looking to cut down on gay propaganda, as the term was being mentioned, and also that it seems as if, in a lot of respects, the international media and media will be monitored uh, quite stringently when it comes to the, the Winter Games and perhaps onto the World Cup. So are protests like this actually quite possible, like they would be in Brazil and other countries? You know, I, I don't... Uh, it really depends. I think, I think a large failure at the, world, uh, at the Winter Games... Um, if something really goes wrong, uh, would be would lead to a sense of let's say national embarrassment. It would it would hurt uh, Putin's own standing in the country. Uh, whether or not that could turn into sort of a large social protest, I wouldn't be so sure. I wouldn't say 100% that that's a, a likelihood that could come out of this. Uh, in terms of let's say gay propaganda, for instance, I mean that's that's a cause that uh, has sort of raised a lot of uh, questions among media in the West recently. Uh, but I mean in Russia, still from what we see in polls uh, and just what we see on the streets in general, um, gay, gay sort of the issue with the the law against gay propaganda hasn't become such a cause celebrity as it has uh, elsewhere. The real question I think is about the, the, the prestige for Russia and and how they're going to pull these games off if they'll pull them off smoothly. Um, I think that that could affect sort of the way that, that many people look at Putin if it's not successful, but I don't think that it would lead, let's say, to a, a social protest on the scale that we've seen here in the past. Okay, Andrew Roth the New York Times, thanks so much for talking to us. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. 8.6 billion on a road, Murph, and you're complaining about potholes around Milltown. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, as Andrew was suggesting here, we could actually fill all of the potholes in Milltown with gold and still bring it in 
quite considerably under that kind of that kind of budget. Uh, yeah, so it's just such a great boost for local businesses. Yeah, you know, local construction businesses and kind of bosses. It's such a great boost for them. Simon made a very good point about the decision uh, once this was announced, first of all. You know, there's, there's obviously been uproar with Qatar and the, the World Cup and all the rest of the Football World Cup. But when it came to the, the uh, Olympics going to Sochi, nobody outside of Russia really knew that there wasn't going to be any snow there. It just seems like, oh, well, it's in Russia, so, you know, it's going to be, sounds, sounds good <laughs> to oh, us. Oh, the frozen tundra. <laughs> That's what everyone just presumed, you know. How are they, they going to get that tundra? It bang up to order for the uh, the ice skating, but it turns out Russia's quite big, and there are some differences in climate between one area of Russia and another. Yeah, which I suppose we could probably have seen, should probably should have seen coming. By the way, the guy responsible for that road has also been banished from the country. Uh, he's, <laughs> this he's, was, he's now in Germany. This was the guy who um, he was on. They were on TV, and Putin said, "Ah, oh, so you're the guy who's made such a great job of the Winter Olympics. What a great job you've done." <laughs> Good job. That was good exactly, job. That was his and, quote. You're doing a good job. Yeah, and mm. and uh, sort of gave him a slow hand clap, and then you know walked off going. Kuh. And uh, the guy's in Germany now. Sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, Ken. I've always I've always said that. We actually never mentioned that we'll be uh, what we'll be talking to US Murph about later. Huge NFL game last weekend, and all the great heroes in sport have a nemesis: Murph, Muhammad mm. Ali, Joe Frazier, Messi and Ronaldo. Yeah, Eric Bristow, Jockey Wilson, of course. And Peyton Manning's nemesis is now clearly Tom Brady. Yes. Uh, well, it, it kind of appears as if uh, Brady has had Manning's number over the last 10 or 15 years that they've been playing each other. And the build-up for all of this was just ridiculous. They were, it was being called Manning-Brady 14, the Manning-Brady Bowl, uh, number 14. And uh, yeah, I mean, Brady's record over him... He Brady's obviously won more Super Bowls, ten and four uh, head heads. Yeah, so it's ten and four head to head, and Brady has also got the, the 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 one important statistic, which is obviously most Super Bowls won. But the two guys are very different characters, but the two probably best quarterbacks that the NFL has seen since uh, Joe Montana. Right, let's get to this first of all. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there. You got the potatoes yeah. and the pudding, huh? And the pudding. Oh yeah, there you are. <laughs> It's just great to have you here, Mark, first of all. Favourite time of the week, Murph. Yeah, because Owen rolls his eyes at this lot every single week. But, I mean, you're a real Irishman, so uh, I'm sure you're a massive fan of this. So loads of emails this week, but I'm going for quality rather than quantity. So I'm only going to read out two today. First one is from Owen King. It's not just a laziness issue there at all. It's no, not, no, no. Oh, it's have... funny because I thought we would have discussed that. You would have done a few more than that, but that's fine. No, just two. no, no. It's, it's really, believe me, they're, they're long, but they're good. Okay. Hi guys, writing from Seoul in Korea, don't roll the eyes yet Murph, another in the long line of Irish emigrant teachers over here, ignoring study plans and instead catching up with your shows. As you're aware, you have a strong following in Korea, and have already had some P-Bezo shoutouts from this side of the world. As each new one came in, I felt less keen to issue a special P-Bezo of my own. However, all that changed today, and I felt I had to share this gloriously random moment which occurred this morning in my local barber's. Upon telling my kind hairdresser I was going home to Ireland for Christmas, she suddenly got very excited and asked... Do you know Pierce Brosnan? However, (laughs) no response was allowed, and she proceeded to tell me how handsome she thought he was. She then went behind the till and showed me a bottle of nutrition. I still have no idea what kind of nutrition. It looked like a mixture of salt and brown sugar that had a full picture of our Pierce on one side. The front of the bottle was in Korean letters, so I couldn't make out the connection. But that didn't matter to the chirpy hairdresser, because as she said in her very best English, I look at him every day. (laughs) Wow. Pause. Handsome. Nice hair. (laughs) 
<laughs> he does. Unfortunately, she wouldn't pose at the bottle, but uh, he did supply a photograph of the bottle of Pierce Brosnan. See, brief. if people ever questioned why we approached Pierce Brosnan to get him to officially endorse this slot, I know that's I know. the very reason. I know it's an outrage, really, that some unscrupulous Korean company out there well, maybe, has decided to attach Pierce Brosnan's name to something or, that or he has no be, idea. He could have officially endorsed it. You know, it could be like uh, you know Bill Murray in Lost in Translation. Yeah, just and he's like four relaxing times. <laughs> it's Suntory times. Maybe that's I'm, what Pierce is doing. I'm going to say, judging by the rather slapdash quality to the bottle, I'm going to say that Pierce didn't really have a whole lot to, to do with this. Uh, Connor Long is in a, you may have seen this photograph on Twitter. We retweeted it. Uh, hi, Kieran. Knowing how high the standard is for a P. Bezos shutout, I hope my attached effort is worthy of a mention. The World Cup of Golf was on at the Royal Melbourne at the weekend. And when Graham McDowell exited the scorer's hut on Saturday, I shamelessly elbowed aside some wide-eyed teenagers waiting for an autograph and held up my hastily prepared P. Bezos sign. Like Homer going to the ice cream van. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> amazingly, amazingly, GMAC didn't know what hashtag P. Bezos meant and I had to very quickly explain it was for Ireland's foremost radio-type sports show thingy. I'm sure Graham enjoyed that conversation. And that, I wasn't, <laughs> and that I wasn't trying to make a fool of him with a silly sign. Of course, of course he wouldn't do that, Connor. In fairness, though, once committed, GMAC really got into it, even giving it a little blue steel, I reckon, and we'll put the photograph up on our um, Irish Times page a little later on. Uh, so there it is. That's me and GMAC, just two more expats giving it a hashtag PBezo. Shout out to the world. Regards from sunny Melbourne, Connor Long. And I have to say, Connor, I did laugh heartily when I saw the photograph, and well done to you, sir. Uh, an excellent effort. Uh, so we should just round off by saying a, ha- a very happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners out stateside including Damien Murphy, who loves it, because it's like Christmas, only you don't have to buy shite for people, <laughs> as he tweeted us earlier today. So that's very charming indeed, Damien. Thank yeah. you. Thanks to uh, Connor Long for going to all that effort. But also I saw, just at the background of that photograph, you can see how annoyed Graham McDowell's agent, agent is, is that yeah. this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, what is this yeah. crap? <laughs> uh, so you can email your life stories and your immigrant stories uh, to secondcaptains at irishtimes.com and I'd be delighted to... To read them out. Look who's just popped in studio because we haven't seen him since the TV show, since Second Captain's Live in RTE. And uh, two goals, only two goals conceded, Murph. Yeah. Over 10 attempts. Which is pretty impressive given uh, the standard of penalty taker that we're talking takers? about here. Ushin McConville and Colin Cooper, the only two men to uh, take a penalty and score against our good friend Shane Curran. Shane Curran, it's great to see you. How are you keeping? Great, yeah. A bit uh, wounded at the moment, but I'll get over it. Yeah, they, 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 uh, obviously I would have liked to keep it to two Sunday and we'd still be kind of champions, but unfortunately <laughs> yeah. it wasn't to be. Obviously you're going to be gutted uh, losing out an extra time in the Connacht final. It was an incredible match, really dramatic and all the rest of things. But when you're coming towards the, the end of your career and you've already reached the top in club football, you've won the All-Ireland, does it must soften the blow quite a bit, does it? I think I'm only actually beginning my career, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why everybody keeps asking me I feel younger every day I go out but uh, yeah look at I suppose you know we, we winning the All-Ireland um, you know it would have been a lot bitter pill to swallow if you hadn't won it that's, that's mm. without doubt you know but having said that um, you know we were part of a lot of very great games over the years you know and certainly in last year's All-Ireland run the, the cross Madeleine game was a, was a huge game and uh, obviously the All-Ireland final to win it in the fashion we wanted so look at we've had good days um Unfortunately, last Sunday wasn't one of those. But you have to give credit credit to Castlebar; they were outstanding on the day, and they played very, very well, as we knew they would, and we knew there would be opposition and tough, and uh, so proved. Yeah, I mean, it's even speaking to you during the the, the TV run in September and October. You know, you you kind of were a little downbeat about 
just about how the team were going and you know the, the fact that there was so much tiredness there and there, even the emotional tiredness of winning the All-Ireland. I mean, you managed to get through Roscommon and then you had two big wins in the Connacht Championship. So I suppose there was an element there that you didn't have to find the extra gear and I suppose when you went looking for it on Sunday, it just kind of, it just wasn't there. It, it wasn't there, um, Kieran, for, and probably for a number of reasons. I think, um, yes, it's true, there's maybe a lethargy mentally, but we've hemorrhaged a lot of players as well um, and you can't really afford to do that at the top level. Peter Dominican was gone, uh, Damien Keller gone, Owen Sheehy gone. Uh, Conor McHugh gone, all of last year's winning team, and you just can't do that. I mean, um, in fairness, Peter Dominican is probably one of the best defenders in the country, you know. So, but having said that, it, it did offer up opportunity for some of the young players to come in and, and uh, get some experience this year, and hopefully that'll that'll stand stand them in good stead. You know, uh, young McInerney came in Nile this year, done very very well for us, as did his brother, and uh, with Adrian Gleeson, a young forward came in, and you know we've Eddie Egan, a few lot of young lads there that have have really come in and done well this year. But un- unfortunately, you know, we just couldn't get over the line Sunday. But that was more down to, I think, Castlebar's, uh, you know, brilliance. And they kept at it and kept at it. And, and um, they got the reward. And um, look, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll winter well, as I say. It's uh, no harm to, mm. to get a break. We've, you know, there's a lot of players been on the road a long, long time. Yeah, I was, actually, that. Yeah, I was actually thinking that, that this is probably be the first Christmas that you Bridges Bears will have had without kind of the, the pole of an iron semi-final hanging over it since whatever it was, 2010, 2009. 2010, yeah, yeah, it's a long time, you know, it's a long time to keep it going. And even, you know, you look at professional sport and you look at the Barcelonas and, and teams like that, they've, they've failed to, to um, you know, they retain a European Cup. You know, they can win it once, mm. but they can't come back and do it. And that's at the highest, elitist level. So we've we've struggled this year, um, there's no doubt about that. But... Um, you know, we we a lot of tough, tough games in Roscommon. Now, funnily enough, the, the Connacht Championship didn't pose as much problems until the final. And maybe, you know, if we had harder games, uh, we would be a little bit more battle-hardened. But, you know, again, as I said, you, you just have to give credit to Castlebar. And uh, I think also you have to credit our own players too. You know, the, you know, while a lot of the lads have been on the road a long time, they didn't waver. We were still two points up in, in, mm. a, in extra time. And... Uh, you know, a couple of kicks of the ball brought it level, and a uh, couple of decisions didn't go away in the second second uh, period of injury time. Where we man sent off for, like, just couldn't understand why Dara, Dara was sent off. But that's the way it goes. You know, these decisions go with you some days and they go against you others. This whole term of hunger is always using the GA and inter-county the whole time. You know, Donegal won the All-Ireland because they were hungry in Mayo. I don't know how Mayo yeah. could actually be any hungry yeah. at that point. but And then they lost it again because they couldn't maintain that the following year. They, you know, their, their performances weren't up to scratch. But I'd say in club football, that becomes more apparent. That's sort of... You know, the motive, to be motivated again to go and actually go all the way and to, to get to another All-Ireland final uh, when you've achieved it. Is that sure, more of a factor? Mark. I'm not sure, Mark. I, 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 you know, I have to say, I think we were very hungry. We were very motivated this year, you know. Um, I think sometimes, you know, teams are get pigeonholed into that kind of, mm. those type of wordings because they're buzzwords that they, they sit well with people. But, you know, had we won that game Sunday, people would be saying this is the hungriest team of all time, you know. And we came within seconds of it. So, it, the, 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 you know, it's very minuscule, the margins, you know, between... Winning and losing, and you know, getting that bit of steak, maybe or not getting it, you know. And uh, you know, I, I don't think it was down to hunger or anything else. I think we we really, really did work hard. Um, we trained very hard and very diligently and very professionally. But unfortunately, look at 
you know, we met a team on the day that maybe just had that little bit more hunger. Did you find the lad who shot you on Sunday? Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I thought um, I saw a shadow running into have, the graveyard end there. You had to have taken a bullet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It <laughs> felt like it, actually, to be fair. I never in my life pulled a muscle, uh, really, as, as, as much as a bullet. Oh, that, that's a reflection of age, I think. Yeah. Was it when you were running out? <laughs> was it when you ran from your goal? It was when I ran from the goal camp. But what actually happened was, and it wasn't, it was innocuous enough, but when I actually seen the pitch open up in front of me I said okay I can get to at least the 45 and it did close up very quickly <laughs> yeah. uh, I can tell you there was four or, four or five red shirts looking at me I said I better get rid of it and when I went to turn I, my foot actually got caught in the grass and I had extra long studs in there were rugby studs that I had in my boot and when I turned the foot didn't release and um, yeah it was very you know to be fair it was painful it might look funny but I can tell you it wasn't <laughs> Do you mind reliving it because you got Willie Hegarty's commentary from Shannon's side and it's uh, pretty dramatic stuff I'd listen. say it is go man Willie I look at me clock it's doctors in the press box out to Shane Corden Corden is out from goal here he comes he's 30 he's 40 he's 50 yards out from goal St. Bridges have no goalkeeper and Shane Corden gives the ball away but it's picked up by young Adrian Gleeson he took Corn and Corn can't get back. Shane Corn has pulled a muscle. He's about to come off the goal. Bridges have no goalkeeper and Shane Corn is injured. Oh, this game is everything. And St. Bridges gives the ball away and it goes back inside. And here comes the Catalbar Mitchell's men. I can't see the numbers in the programme because we have no light. It's darkness. I'm commentating in the dark. Some people say you can't commentate in the light. Never mind the dark. Shane Curran has gone down injured. I think he'll have to come off the field to play. I think he pulled a hamstring or something. I can't see Curran continuing. It could be his last race out of goal. I think they'll have to send in a stretcher for him. And if they do, it'll be dark again. He, he, you know, he gets up. But he's certainly, he's certainly near the end line. But um, Marty Duffy was doing his best to lift him and carry him off the pitch. But and, and He'd be a brave man, Marty. Uh, he would, yeah, because I think... That, but, like, you know, he'll have to add on to extra time. And he, he's... Uh, as the fellow Burway once said, there's about five of them carrying him off now. I think he's doing a bit of foxing in the middle of it all. Shane Curran has been lifted by an umpire, the sub-goalie, two Castle barmen and a British man. That's one of the most dramatic sporting injury sequences in, in history. I, I think it is. Some foxing. I've never actually heard that, that phrase <laughs> There before. was no foxing going on. No, I don't in think, fairness. But your expression, there was any foxing. Yeah. No, it must have been a Tlany Gale uh, expression <laughs> that Tony Shine, I think, was, was alluding to there. You I'm not to be, too sure. at um, one point abusing the physio who was <laughs> trying to help you. What was well, it was very painful. And, and Pat, to be fair, was trying to get me back on the pitch. But um, every time he touched me calf, it was <laughs> lifting me. Uh, it was kind of excruciating, the pain. But look, at that's, that's, you know, Gaelic football. You're and get back and try and get back on the pitch but unfortunately it was, I wasn't able to put my legs from one under the other it was like a man was after having 40 pints but uh, What was on your mind when the calf went and you still had 50 yards to get back to goal and you were trying to make it back? Well, I was actually hoping yeah, the ball wouldn't the come back in yeah. to be honest because yeah. I had to I had to go down and my, the leg was actually gone from underneath me and the lads were saying you better get up and I said sure I can't get up and I got up by the post and I stood up and they got a they actually, I think they got a ball in a ball came across the goal and normally I would have caught it and ran another 45 yards, but unfortunately, <laughs> uh, I just had to punch it out, and we, we got the ball out, and uh, look, Shane, got, Shane came in for me then, but uh, look, that's one of those things. That can, injuries like that can happen whether you're 25 or 42, it doesn't really matter. It's actually, you're one of the last goalkeepers to, to do those runs out of goal the whole time, and everyone likes to see them. When, when you're, are you looking for openings at that point? You know, it's kind of something you do the whole time. Do you enjoy doing it? Is it something you do to entertain a little bit, or...? Oh no, it's not. I mean, it's pretty serious when you're playing. But mm. I think a lot of people may not have known, but I play a lot of my football, early football, as an intercounty footballer outfield. So yep. I'd be pretty, you know, uh, would have had the skill sets to do that. But sometimes, you know, in a game, 
people back off you, players back off you. So you've got the the, the field to go on and and see can you, yeah, can you take always, advantage of yeah, it. Yeah, people always say no, just leave the goalie. That's the the whole idea of it. So you mm. you leave the goalkeeper and you pick up the guy. So you do actually have the freedom there to make a couple of easy yards. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's the yards getting know. back into the goal. They're the, the hard yards. Uh, they are no yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Shane. I mean, you you would have watched Rene Gita and what happened to him, what Roger Mead did to him in the World Cup. Yeah, you heard the commentator there. He said St. Bridget's have no goalkeeper. <laughs> yeah, Ken, that's, <laughs> that's true. what I was thinking. I think the thing about Gaelic football is completely different to soccer because the dynamics are different. You know, players can put their hand on the ball in soccer. You know, a fella gets the ball from sixty yards out, he can chip the keeper and put it in the back. And it's not going to happen in Gaelic football. Thankfully, it hasn't happened to me in my career. The only time I can remember a goalkeeper being chipped was a, a guy by the name of Paulie Connolly. He used to play in goal with, double, uh, with Galway years and years ago. Neighbour me on. Neighbour uh, me on. Shane, I don't really... Barney I, Rock kicked it in from yeah, around 45 I really yards there's over. No need, there's no need to, to mention <laughs> Porra Coin in this. Porra Coin, we're, I yeah, we're, still, we're still living it down in my time, Shane. Um, uh, Porra is a great keeper, but he got, he got uh, caught out, I think, in 80, 83, 83, was it? 83, yeah, 83, 83 yeah. final, yeah. But that was, a, that was a kick-out, around. I think, actually. It was a kick-out, kick yeah. Out, yeah. Basically, nearly knocked Barney Rock over with the force of a kick out straight into Barney Rock's midriff, and he lobbed him for forty five yards. Forty five yards, which yeah. wasn't great. But uh, Shane, we're we're meeting up again on Friday night uh, for this uh, charity quiz. I don't know if you want to tell the, the listeners a little bit about what uh, Bridget's are doing. Myself and Ken are emceeing this event. Yeah, really looking forward to it, and I'd like to thank you, lads. It's just great to have you Shane, involved you know in the event. Called. It's it's fantastic. Um, yeah, the event came about. We only set it up about five weeks ago. Um, Martin Curran and myself and a committee got together then to... We, we just looked at it. I mean, being All-Ireland champions, I think, you know, you have a duty of care, um, I think, to give something back to the community. And um, we looked at various ways of doing that and we thought that one of the ways of doing it would be through a quiz, offer a, a, a particularly decent cash prize, Um and uh, then the, the, the proceeds, um, of the offerings of will go to, to the to two charities that we picked. Now, we picked Peter House um, and we picked the Meoris Common Hospice on a more local level. But I think, as we know, lads, um, there's been a lot of talk about men- mental health issues over the last mm. number of years. Um, and a lot of, uh, unfortunately, sad deaths have come across because of suicide and things like that. And um, you know, I think it's it's needless. I think we have to offer, offer up opportunity as sports people to those people who find themselves in, in a dark place that, you know, you can do something for them. And um, I think a neighbour of yours as well, Kieran, um, Michael Ryder is highly involved down there in Galway and they only just opened the first house of yeah. care in, in Tune in recently, June, yeah, yeah. which is great. But they need funding and they're a young uh, organisation. I think... The loss of life to suicide in this country is really a scourge and it's something that um, certainly we, we as players felt that uh, would be very worthy and it's uh, something we just wanted to do and uh, going forward maybe the next All-Ireland Champions or somebody else may take up the mantle. Yeah, and, uh, peop- and people can still register for the quiz on the Bridget's w- website? Or on the Bridget's website, yeah. It's uh, um or they can um, phone the club. There's a number on the website that they can phone and register, yes. Yeah, it's a wonderful cause and um, fair play to Ken as well because he's waived 5% of his fee, his normal yeah, fee. Really because it's for charity. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Ken, I mean, it's just... You know, my respect for you. I didn't think it could go any higher. You paid for it. But this gesture, you know, I mean, saying. you're giving something back, exactly, Ken, and we, we appreciate that. Shane, all the time. Is it annoying people asking you about retirement all the time? Um, no, I, I think with sports people, there is this um, concentration on, on, on retirement um, for some reason or other. I've always kind of said that, you know, the game eventually gives you up. You don't give the game up. And 
that's my consistent viewpoint on it. Um, whether that moment has arrived or not, I'm not too sure. I, I don't know. Um, I feel fit. I feel strong. Um, you know, the winter is is going to be long now, but also it'll give us, a, you know, myself and, and my wife and kids a chance to enjoy Christmas and things mm. like that. So maybe we'll get reinvigorated and next spring when the when the weather gets good and the long evenings come again, you know, we may be ready for the battle again. I don't know. Do you get stressed at all thinking about not playing? Is, would there be a big void in your life if you weren't actually on the pitch? Um. Yeah, I think. Look at. I think when when that time comes, you, you you know it's probably to some people it's probably like a death. You know, you you know you're not going to you're not going to get out there ever again. And uh, but in my case, if if that time has arrived, um, I can I can look back at it just a, just a wonderful wonderful time. And outside of what what was won or what wasn't won. Um, it's the great friends that we've met over the years and uh, certainly the last 18 months have been just brilliant for, for my own kids uh, in particular because they've been down to every single training session we've been at and they're getting to that stage I suppose where boys are boys are in the way and, and they're beginning to look at them uh, more uh, fondly than you'd want <laughs> but uh, you know they've had a, cu- a couple of a couple of great years and um, as I said uh, I've had a wonderful career whether it's over or not I'm not too sure uh, if it is it is if it isn't we just move on and also you have the burgeoning TV career as well that you can focus on too. So <laughs> there's another positive. I'd say, I'd say you have a lot of people to score goals maybe next year, lads, but... Uh that's well, we're going to have to start flying the mid from all over the world now. I mean, you've beaten the best that Ireland has to offer, Shane, so now we've got to move this worldwide, I think. Listen, thanks so much for coming into us. Great to have you in, Shane. Joy, Mark, as always. And uh, once again, like I said, thanks to Kieran and uh, Ken for, for tomorrow. Oh, don't mention it, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll have a few beers after it as well, so it should be a great event and a great evening. All right, that's, that's good manners. A number of the players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, 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 obviously none of their business, you know, what I was going to do. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> we want to win football, that's just... There's nothing to tame, you know, some sort of animal, you know what I mean? Um, you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like Mother Teresa. You know, he's... Um, <laughs> No, no, and we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days. The hotel's been lovely. Food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. So, lads, I'm excited about this event. Yeah, have you sorted out your uh, outfits? I'm thinking, I'm just off the top of my head. I'm thinking, sort of, uh, Carrie Crowley, Ronan Keating, Eurovision, uh, back in the day, <laughs> ten in a in a fi- in one of his finest ball gowns. The one concern that I, I haven't, I don't know the exact layout of the room, yeah. you know. So I'm hoping that there's kind of a long sweeping staircase mm. down which we can walk, kind of <laughs> hand no, in hand. Ken should be on the piano, uh, <laughs> a grand piano. Well, certainly, there's going to be a, there's going to be a musical element to it. Yeah. Um, and puppets, hand puppets. Well, the hand puppets. I'm just thinking maybe it's a little too lowbrow for the crowd. For people okay, at the back yeah, of the yeah. room, you know. Yeah, yeah, but certainly there will be some music, some cabaret, um, some hip hop. Well, yeah, I think to start the night there might be a little bit of hip hop just to get the crowd <laughs> yeah. in the mood. But then for the maybe for our final number, and I, I haven't really discussed this with you, Kent. So forgive me if I'm uh, presuming too much. But yeah. kind of a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, 
kind of you know a, just a little bit of a, of a, a, sh- a song and dance something routine. classy like yeah exactly just you know leave them wanting more Ken just that's, let, that's, that's, that's the plan also just to let people know <laughs> it's not uncommon for the people who actually host the quiz to, to win, win the to quiz to win the quiz yeah that, we've, we've just that seen has the, happened before yeah we've, we've only seen the questions we haven't seen the answers yeah. So I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure we won't, you know, but there is a ch- there is a chance. Tasty cash prize after all. Tasty, tasty, tasty. Apparently, uh, I mean, I, I haven't concerned myself with the numbers. It's all about charity. But. Coming up at six pm tonight. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. Have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. So we're going to talk a little bit about Andre. Andre, Andre the giant? Andre Villas-Boas. Uh, we haven't actually... That's, less, giant ex- in, that's less exciting. Giant in managerial <laughs> proportions. We haven't talked about him all that much uh, so far this year, but Spurs have been uh, chugging their way to mid-table mediocrity. And then when they lost six nil to uh, Man City, you suddenly think, "Well, actually, hang on, this is really not very good at all." And um, uh, quite a few reports then suggesting that Villas was on the brink of losing his job, which I find absolutely incredible, considering you know how well he was generally, I think, thought to have done last season, and how uh, <laughs> how uh, little time has elapsed since that moment. Mm. So uh, yeah, we're going to talk a bit about him and whether his particular style, his particular charisma. What he really brings to the party, whether it translates to an English party as opposed to a Portuguese one. Looking forward to that, Murph. It sounds it sounds good. It sounds good, Ken. I'm looking forward to it. Now it's time for, <laughs> now it's time for US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behaviour. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three, call! Yeah, it's time for U.S. Sports, and Brian Murphy's with us. How you doing, Brian? Boys, I, I, uh, awesome. I mean, I believe we're airing on one of the great days in uh, in America, if not the greatest. It's Thanksgiving Day. Come on, this is, uh, this a, is very, our, a very warm year. Thanksgiving to you, Brian, and to yeah, you, and to yours. You. Thank you, guys. I know you're not uh, partaking. You choose not to celebrate U.S. Thanksgiving. I have no idea why you don't. You get Thursday <laughs> off. You get Friday off. You get football. We get turkey. You get Food, gravy. Can I offer you gravy? <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, and, we accept uh, your gravy. And stuffings. And of course, the underrated pleasure of Thanksgiving is the next day's turkey sandwich, heavily salted with cranberry and, uh, and gravy and some, and some good rolls and all that. So we're gluttons and we're happy and I hope you guys are well. So sport around Thanksgiving is pretty good then, is it? Uh, it's awesome. Uh, football is the deal. Although, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but... Um, you know, we're sort of painted into a corner on football on Thanksgiving Day because there's a tradition, and I don't know, you know, who knows how these traditions start, but they're not willing to change it, that the Detroit Lions and the Dallas Cowboys host football games on Thanksgiving Day. It's been going on for, for Detroit. It goes back to the 1930s, and for Dallas, I think, to the 1960s. But that's kind of what I grew up with, and quite frankly, I'm sick of seeing the Lions and the Cowboys on Thanksgiving Day. I'd like to see somebody else once in a while, especially because both those teams – 
play on AstroTurf, and that drives me nuts. I hate uh, artificial turf. I like outdoor games on real turf, real grass. But Detroit plays inside a, um, a sort of a semi-dome now, Ford Field. They have a little bit of a light coming in. The Lions are okay. They used to be. Guys, for about 20 years, they were awful. So it was always a bad, bad game. But they're getting better now. You know, they're a quasi-playoff team, probably going probably gonna to make the playoffs this year. And then, of course, the Cowboys. Um, uh, to me, the Cowboys are still drafting off the 19, you know, Troy Aikman, 19, early 1990s, because they they've won one playoff game in the last 20 years. And uh, quite frankly, I'm sick of the Cowboys, but they get the Raiders today. And then they've added now in the last four or five years, they've added a third game at night. It'll be the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens. Again, on paper, when they scheduled that over the summer, it looked great. But both teams are having disappointing seasons, the Steelers and the Ravens. So of the three games today, Lions-Packers is probably the best game. And Aaron Rodgers isn't even playing in it because so, he's got the broken collarbone. So I'll just sit my I'll bide my time, keep half an eye on it, and wait for my 49ers on Sunday. Well, Brian, forget about today for a minute because we want to go back a few days to the big hype game of last weekend. And people over here, and I'm sure it's the same in the U.S., get really sick of TV stations and sports organizations overhyping contests. And I'm sure the whole Peyton Manning, Tom Brady angle got the full treatment last week. And then Patriots and Broncos go out and give us an absolute classic. Yeah, you know, it's, you're absolutely right. We, 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 sometimes things get overhyped in this era of 24-7, 365 sports. We've seen that over here in America, particularly with, I'll give you three names, um, uh, Brett Favre, when he was going through all his dramas, we got sick of him, Tim Tebow, mm. we got sick of him, and I'll throw you an Alex Rodriguez in there too, mm. with all his uh, A-Rod and all his shenanigans with arbitrations and steroids and all that. So yeah, we can easily get overdosed and overloaded. Uh, the good news on this was that there was going to be a game on Sunday, so it wasn't going to be a never-ending hype. And you had Peyton and Brady, and they're both good this year. So it was actually, this one had some merit to it going in. These were two winning teams. It's not like um, they were two fading Lions in winter. Even though they were meeting for the 14th time against each other, they're both playing at an extremely high level. And Peyton, of course, having reinvented himself after his neck surgeries and his release from the Indianapolis Colts, People wondered if he had anything left in his gas tank. Well, he, God, he started this year like a house on fire. His first four, six games were among the best four, six games in NFL quarterbacking history. Meanwhile, Tom Brady on the other side has been cobbling together momentum, and we talked about this a few weeks ago about how all his receivers are down. Heck, it started for him in the offseason with the tragedy of his tight end Aaron Hernandez getting uh, arrested for murder, and then Rob Gronkowski's injury and the loss of Wes Welker. But Brady has cobbled together a season and a half. So they came in at 7-3, and three, and the Denver Broncos at 9-1. and one. So it was a really good game just on paper. They throw in the history of, of Manning and Brady. And it's been enough now, guys. We go back to, what, the early 00s when these guys were really locking horns all the way. So go back to the early George W. Bush first term years. And then here we are now in Obama's second term, and these guys are still locking horns. And then you get the game itself where Peyton Manning takes advantage of some uh, New England turnovers and builds a 24 to nothing lead. And it looks like, wow, Peyton's really going to drive a stake into Tom Brady's heart. And Brady's been real. You know, what's funny about Brady is as, as he's gotten older, it's almost like he feels you can tell that he doesn't have that many years left and he wants to sort of maximize what he has. So he's been more animated on the field. He's very demonstrative and very emotional. And here he comes right out of the gate in the second half. Touchdown. Touchdown, Denver turns it over again. Touchdown, three straight touchdowns, 24-21. Uh, another turnover, a fourth touchdown. 28-24 lead, a 31-24 lead, and it looks like one of the greatest Tom Brady performances you'll ever want to see. Coming back from 24-0 down in the second half against Peyton Manning in, guys, a freezing wind 
Wind chill of zero degrees Fahrenheit, huge winds in New England. And then Peyton answers the call by tying the game with a late touchdown just when it looked like he'd lost all his momentum. We go into overtime, and there a weird thing happens. A bizarre punt fumble by Denver leads to a late field goal. And New England wins the biggest comeback in franchise history, the biggest comeback Tom Brady obviously has ever had. He does it to Peyton yet again. You could just see poor Peyton Manning's face. He looked, he was cold, he was tired, he was bummed, and Brady was screaming and yelling and all pumped up. So another triumph for handsome Tom, guys. Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting um, how the two of them, even their body language on uh, on Sunday night was really interesting to me. That Peyton is, you know, the supposed to be just this analytical brain. I mean, I actually I saw a photograph of him uh, arriving at the game at the stadium early on Sunday, and he had like this little briefcase with him and one of those little roller bags. You know, and it, the, so the person had tweeted, kind of said, "Does this man look like a footballer to you?" And he didn't. He looked like a middle-aged businessman. You know, catching the red eye to Washington or something like that, like that, you know. And then Brady is out on the field, as you say, unbelievably demonstrative towards his teammates and his, the referees. I mean, at one stage in the fourth quarter, he went absolutely uh, ballistic at a re- at a refereeing call. And it, it's just kind of interesting that they would have started out as these two young guys, as you were talking about in the early noughties. And Brady, it seems, has gotten even more fired up in the intervening years. And Peyton has retreated further and further into his professorial kind of uh, persona. Yeah, excellent analysis. I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think, you know, it's different personalities. Peyton is a more sort of subdued, analytical guy. That's kind of how he's gone about his career. The greatness of Peyton Manning has been his science. You know, he's a, he's a scientist. He's a, um, he's a guy who will, who will see a defense better than you. He will recognize a coverage better than you. So he will always throw to the right guy for the maximum efficiency in every play, like a laboratory almost. And some would say maybe that he's kind of lacking that, that passion that's needed sometimes when the chips are down and when you kind of sometimes need to kind of reach down beyond the science and into the heart. And that's where Tom Brady, I think, has made his career so many comebacks in his career. Now, mind, Peyton has a number of comebacks, too, because he's so good. He has an incredible amount of wins, an incredible amount of yards. I'm not dissing him at all. I'm saying they have different styles, as you noted, Kieran. And and here is a case where Brady's style really suited him because they needed some piss and vinegar to get going. They needed somebody to kind of fire him up. In fact, if people want to have some fun, they should look up the Brady to Gronkowski touchdown. I think makes it 24-21. <laughs> he's lost his mind Brady's <laughs> totally lost his mind Yeah, this is Tom Brady by the way Tom you know T- GQ Tom right married to Giselle the Brazilian supermodel right the guy who every game is a fashion play that people wait to see what he wears after the games you know because it'll move the needle of, uh, of the fashion uh, among the fashionistas in New York and uh, Los Angeles you know and, uh, and yet he's acting like a school kid out there and that's part of his charm part of his beauty you remember guys all three of his Super Bowls were won with last-minute drives. Um, now, all three of them were field goals by Adam Vinatieri, but still he had to kind of will his team into position all three times. So that, that shows you the kind of blood-and-guts type of guy he is. Peyton has only won one Super Bowl, of course. One is still a great achievement, but many think he should have had more. So he's obviously jealous of Tom's three. Now, another reason I think Tom is so sort of demonstrative. I mentioned earlier, he feels the window closing. He's getting older. He's been sort of screwed over with his receiver situation. So he's trying to make something out of, you know, trying to, trying to get blood from a turnip or something here. 
but also I think because he feels the pain of those last two Super Bowl losses. You know, I mean, he, he, I think, you know, Joe Montana was his idol growing up here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Joe Montana was his favorite. Joe Montana never lost a Super Bowl. Here Tom Brady has to wear two losses in a Super Bowl. So I'm sure he's, um, that, that drives him, and he's a very driven guy. So, uh, guys, guess what? They're probably going to see each other again in January. We're going to have this conversation again in about a month and a half. Yeah, and uh, I think the Brady-Manning conversation is, is one that people always have. Um, and if you go strictly by the numbers of you know yards thrown and touchdowns thrown and all the rest, it's a tight battle. But over here, say, our sporting landscape is, all, is, is much less about numbers and more about guys who can come up with you know, goals at vital times in the Premier League or in the GA over here or whatever, and less so about just pure numbers. And so from, say, from our kind of sporting background, it's not even an argument because, as you say, Brady is capable of winning the big games, not just throwing these unbelievably impressive numbers, which maybe even, even this year Manning is, is proving very adept at. It's funny, yeah. It's, it's a style thing. It's almost like uh, Rolling Stones or the Beatles, you know, or whoever you like, or uh, in the rap world, uh, Tupac or Biggie or whatever, you know, these style choices that you're presented with in life. Um, and, and Brady and Manning present different styles. There are those who would sit here and tell you that Peyton Manning is the greatest quarterback who ever lived. I've heard people say that. These are people with, you know, these are not just morons saying it. These are people with thoughts and takes and analysis who study the game. They say, look at what he's done here. Look at what he's done there. Look at his, look at his production. Look at his efficiency. You know, and they'll say uh, winning a championship requires more than just a quarterback. You have to look at his circumstances, his defense, his coaches, his receivers. Therefore, even though he's only won one Super Bowl to Brady's three, you can make an argument that Peyton is the superior quarterback. But like you're saying, there are other people who would look at this and say, are you kidding me? Give me the championships. Give me the guy who wins the Super Bowl. I don't care about – I understand receivers and defense and fate and coaches and bounces and kicks all play a role in it. But you're either going to win the Super Bowl as a quarterback or you're not. And Brady's always had that over Manning. So it really is a stylistic choice. It is, it's, it's, and that's what's so great. It's a, you know, styles make – or what styles make rivalries, or rivalries make styles, whichever the chicken or the egg is. We've gone through this with Bird and Magic in the 80s. That's one thing Michael Jordan was always lacking in the 90s was a true rival to really kind of compare and contrast him to. And LeBron kind of has that right now. Now that he's won two in a row, he doesn't really have a true – I mean, Kevin Durant – They've tried to sort of make him into a bit of a rival. The Yankees and the Red Sox had that great thing going in the early OOs where they met all the time and ESPN showed them all the time. So we love a great rivalry, and Peyton and Tom provide that for us. And whichever guy you favor shows the kind of style of sports fan you are. Brian, just another big factor in that game was the fact that when it went to overtime, uh, Bill Belichick chose to receive the ball and chose for Patriots to receive the ball. Explain the significance of that for us because it was an unusual move for him. So there's a couple things going in here. So overtime in the NFL has changed. It used to be first team that scores wins. So um, it meant frequently if you won the coin toss, you were in fantastic shape because all you had to do was kick a field goal. And in the NFL, kickers are so good now, you really only need to get to about the 35-yard line, and you've got a real good chance to kick a field goal. And that's not a, it's not extremely difficult to get to the 35-yard line and kick a field goal. And, and often the team that, that wins the coin toss gets to the 30-yard line, kicks a field goal, wins, and the other team never touches the ball. Well, they decided that that's unfair, and I think most people agree with this move. It's unfair to, to hinge it strictly on a coin toss and to make a field goal the only decider. So two years ago, they established a new rule where each team gets to touch the ball at least once unless, unless the team that wins the coin toss scores a touchdown 
on their drive, which I think everybody agreed is fair because to score a touchdown in the NFL is a lot harder than kicking a field goal. So if a team does go down and score a touchdown, they deserve to win. However, mm. if they settle only for a field goal, the other team gets a chance to get the ball. So Bill Belichick, mindful of the new rule, decided that the mother nature, and this is part of the beauty of outdoor football versus the dome, is whether you've got to play the weather. It's like golf. You've got to figure out uh, the weather elements. And the weather elements that night in New England were so severe. There was such an incredible November storm blowing through New England. The wind was coming from one direction only, and it made driving down that into the wind almost impossible. So Bill Belichick made a very calculated gamble. He elected to take the wind over the ball, meaning if you give up the ball on the coin toss, you get to choose which side you, which side you defend. He said, I will give Peyton Manning the ball first, but I get the wind at my back. So it was a big, it was a big risk because what if Peyton Manning had let him down to a touchdown and Tom Brady never touched the ball? But Brian, is, well, that, is that also really disrespectful to Peyton Manning in a way and that in these kind of high-pressure situations that you know, the, Belichick didn't have or certainly had no faith that he'd be able to deliver? Yes and no. Yeah, I mean, he was. He was daring him. He was, and that's kind of that high-stakes, you know, big ego game. And I'm sure Peyton felt a little disrespected, like, all right, fine. Well, guess what, by the way? Peyton did not lead him to a touchdown. Mm-hmm. So Bill Belichick got – it turned out to be the right move. As One of the big storylines of Peyton to follow as we get into December and January is his neck surgeries and age have him – his arm seems to be losing strength as the year is going on. It's just hard for his body to come back week after week after week after all these neck surgeries. And his arm strength into the wind was dramatically affected. And it was a brilliant stroke by Belichick. He was absolutely right. He, Peyton was unable to lead them down the field. Now, as it turns out, Tommy couldn't do it the other way either. They were going nowhere, and it took kind of a fluke play to actually win it for New England. It was a weird bounce on a bunt, uh, punt that caused a fumble. But – the bottom line is Belichick was right. He, Peyton never led that touchdown. The wind was too much for him. And uh, Mother Nature and Belichick conspired to stop Peyton. It was really brilliant strategy. It was fun. Yeah, and in, in many ways, maybe that's the difference between uh, Brady and Manning, is that uh, Peyton Manning you know, never had a Bill Belichick, a once-in-a-lifetime coach. And maybe, maybe that's the difference. You know, maybe that's the, the, the real uh, clinching factor in the whole Brady-Manning argument. Totally, and that's another argument, a great, another great sports barroom argument, which is, you know, how much does the coach matter? There are some who would say Joe Montana would never have gone 4-0 and if Bill Walsh wasn't his offensive genius of a coach. Well, we'll never know. You know, would Bill Walsh have won four Super Bowls without Joe Montana as his quarterback? And would Peyton Manning have more than one if, if he played for Bill Belichick? You know, and that's why some would say – those who defend Peyton would say, well, he never had Belichick as his coach. Therefore, I look at his stats and his efficiency, and therefore he's the more superior quarterback. And others would say, well, I don't care that Brady has Belichick as his coach. Uh, Whatever they've done, they've created enough magic together that they are the superior tandem. So really, Brady and Belichick are the Walsh and Montana of of the OOs. And now even into the 10s, that's what's incredible is that they're still doing it. And now at 8-3, and They're right back. They're only a game away from having the best record in the AFC. Heck, guys, they could be back to yet another Super Bowl. They've been to five together. They're gunning for a six. What about you, Brian? Is Brady Manning no contest at this stage? Uh, I, 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 I like them both. I, I skew towards Brady. Um, I prefer his I, – well, I, I, I'm very provincial. I like the fact that he's from California. He's a local kid. That helps for sure. I like his style. I do. I like Peyton Manning a lot. I really do. I have a great respect for both. To me, it's not an, 
uh, an enmity thing. I don't have spite or disdain for either guy. I do have great respect and admiration for either guy, but I think I like Brady's style better. And I think what you guys are saying about what you, how you judge uh, your sports figures over there, mm. that it comes down to the golden goal or the big moment or the final minute or who performs in the clutch the best. And Brady's record is better, and that moves me more as a sports fan. I take Brady over Manning. All right, Brian Murphy. Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the football today. You guys are the best. Take care. Talk next week. We were discussing earlier that Tom Brady is Peyton Manning's nemesis, Murph. Mm. Who would you say is Ken Early's nemesis? Ooh. Michael McMullen? No. CFM? No. Steve Staunton, clearly. Ah. Yeah, actually. Yeah, that, that makes a world of sense. Has there been any communication since uh, Stevie got the chop? You didn't mm. see him. He was obviously... Uh, Annihilizing for uh, Sky Sports. I saw him. I mean, at a distance of sixty meters, yeah. he was standing down by the uh, little stand at the at one extreme of the Aviva. What stand is that called? The Havelock Square end, isn't that it? Midget stand. He was, that's that's where they were. You could see himself, uh, Houghton and Quinn, fairly unmistakable trio. Yeah, uh, standing there analyzing. Uh, and I saw him at Goodison Park once. Um, I'm not quite sure what was going on. I was there with Kevin Kilban and... Uh, Ever think of an approach? Uh, no. We Buried were, hatchet? The, the, the press box at Goodison Park is pretty uh, cramped. It's not easy to get in and out. You, once you're in, you're staying in. Yeah. Mm. Um, so Steve Stondon was then... We could see him a few rows in front of us and he was sort of... He had turned around and he was kind of staring up at the stand just behind us, you know, looking back up mm. towards us. And so we were looking down... And his eyes sort of wandered wandered along the stand and eventually saw Kilban, you know, and he, oh, you know, and sort of wait. And then his eyes seemed to drift just, the, you know, to the next person. And no, let's just say no glimmer of recognition <laughs> was betrayed on his uh, on his features. All right, second captain's football coming up at 6pm, Ken. Next week, we're going to be doing our sports book recommendations for the year and some of our all-time sports books as well. So get your recommendations into us. You can email us at secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Tweet us at secondcaptains using the hashtag SC Sportsbooks. And we're also going to stick up the uh, on Facebook and on Twitter now the wonderful sequence involving Shane Curran. Yes, I think that that's only, that's only fair. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you know, you it, it behooves you to go online and see this as quickly as possible. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Thanks Kieran. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back at six. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.